Today we finish the book of Matthew. That's a biggie. You know when we began this book? First Sunday in June, 2015. So today's the end of this. Today also is a milestone that marks the end of my regular preaching at Wiser Lake Chapel. Next Sunday, Pastor Nathan will begin a study of Joshua. He doesn't need my help. Though I will do several more of the studies on the Psalms on on Sunday evening, after today I will only preach two Sunday mornings, the Sunday before before, uh, Thanksgiving and the last Sunday of the year in December. But that's not what we're here to talk about this morning. Today we come to look at Matthew's Gospel for the last time. We come to one of the most important parts, one of the most relevant parts for where we stand. For these many months, we've studied in some detail the unique birth and and the captivating life of Jesus. We have not looked away from the ugly reality of his brutal suffering and death. And we've dared to consider and even believe the mind-boggling truth that Jesus rose from the dead. But now what? What difference does it all make? Well, that's what we learn in this last section of Matthew. We call this text, Jesus' Great Commission. Let me read it. Matthew 28, 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There are three very straightforward truths here. Simple as, you can, as simple as can be, but very powerful. The first is this. Jesus is the boss. Jesus is the boss. You know, in any, in any endeavor, this cru- crucial uh, question always arises, who's in charge? That used to be a fairly straightforward issue. Society was built on certain institutions with clear-cut lines of authority. But these days, we have come to feel less and less uh, bound by any authority. In fact, uh, there there are many who question whether anyone deserves their allegiance and whether anyone has the right to tell them what to do. Every teacher, you know, I know a teacher very well, and every teacher of these kids knows that kids come with parents who recognize no authority, and therefore their kids flippantly will say to parents and teacher alike, I don't care what you say. You're not my boss. But in our text, God is not confused with the modern uncertainty concerning authority. Here in, in, in our text is the most, abs- in the, the most absolute terms, God's word says, Jesus says, that he is the boss. Oh, he's not just any boss. He is the Lord. In verse 17, we learn that the disciples no longer just followed him, no longer just learned from him, they worshipped him. 
which is what we should expect. We read Romans 1, for there we learn that by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God, our Lord. Jesus is the boss. Why did he just make that up? Jesus himself said that, verse 18, all authority, all, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. This unique person has been raised from the dead as a testimony of his deity and as a proof of the effectiveness of his work on the cross. So now Jesus, exalted by the Father to his rightful throne as the ruler of everything, or to say it in the most simple terms I can come up with, Jesus is the boss. The early church understood this, and they confessed it clearly. He, Jesus, is Lord. That flew in the face of, of the Roman patriotic pledge of allegiance, which was Caesar is Lord. But Christians knew Caesar was not the Lord, and they wouldn't confess that. And because they would not abandon or compromise their confession, they were thrown to lions. But they were right, and Caesar was wrong. Caesar is now ancient history, but Jesus is still the Lord. This morning, we're about to hear what God wants us to do with our lives. But before we do, we need to get this authority matter settled. For already we have ideas of our own. We have personal preferences. We have prior responsibilities. We have long-range career goals. Not to mention tomorrow's already full schedule. But Jesus reserves the right to preempt all of those things. His plans have priority because he is sovereign. Here he says plainly, all authority is mine. So what does our Lord Jesus Christ tell us to do? Well, that brings us to our second point. Couldn't come up with anything clever. I just have to say what Jesus said. Go make disciples. Go make disciples. Did you ever notice how people are given to causes? Because we want our lives to count for something People will put their lives on the line for something greater than themselves. And the list of such causes, calling people to their time and energy, is endless. We have environmental causes. We have social justice concerns. We have immigration problems. We have constitutional uh, freedoms. We have political theories. We have medical advances in so many fields. But you only have one life. Which cause is the most important is there any cause that eclipses all the others? Is there a cause which holds hope for ultimate peace and well-being for the whole earth, for all generations? Is there any cause noble enough to give perspective to all of life for all people everywhere? <laughs> yes, there is. Jesus, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, calls us to invest our lives in obedience to his command to go make 
disciples. That's what Jesus says in verse 19 and the first of 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go make disciples. So what's a disciple? The word itself means a person who is a learner. In the Gospels and in Acts, where the word is used some 250 times, a disciple is one who has attached himself to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Master. One writer explains, to be a disciple is to be brought into the relation of a pupil to a teacher, taking the teacher's yoke of authoritative instruction, so that you accept what the teacher says because he said it, and you submit to his requirements because he is your mentor. He is your teacher. Folks, you have to be a, be a disciple before you can go make disciples. So first of all, I call you to discipleship. To concern yourself with knowing and serving Jesus above everything else, above every other priority that you have. Then Jesus commands us who have become his disciples to go make disciples from every nation and culture on earth. This is the all-encompassing cause which is worthy of our lives, our time, our talent, our treasure, our energies. Now, this is not the first all-encompassing command that the Lord has ever given us. Immediately after the creation, God gave his human image bearers another commission. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We commonly call this the cultural mandate. Here God called his human creatures to replenish and fill the earth and to exercise dominion over it for the Lord, whose creation it is. Nancy Piercy, in her book Total Truth, explains, be fruitful and multiply means to develop the social world. Build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. Subdue the earth means harness the natural world. Plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. So which are we called to do? Fill and subdue the earth to God's glory or go make disciples? Which? Well, Christians have tended to choose one or the other. Some give themselves to every kind of endeavor as stewards of God's creation, excited about literature and music and, and uh, science and government and culture, but with seldom a thought of sharing the gospel with anyone. Other Christians believe that this whole world and all man's efforts are just going to burn up pretty quick here, and all that matters is evangelism. Go share the gospel. Make disciples. But is it really one or the other? Thinking about this, I was greatly helped by John Frame, who is a theology professor of mine. I didn't understand too much of what he said. But he got married, and then I can, I can understand what he said. I don't know what that had to do with it. 
His conclusion is that the Great Commission and the cultural mandate are essentially the same. The cultural mandate was given before mankind's fall into sin. Nonetheless, after the fall, we read in Genesis about in Genesis 4, people still tried to do that. They built civilizations, they forged tools, they wrote music. And what was the result? Strife, pollution, destruction of the earth, dehumanization of people. So to quote Frame, if human beings are to fulfill the cultural mandate, their hearts must be subdued to God before the earth can be subdued to them. That's what the Great Commission does. It brings about a transformation of people so that they can go and fill the earth, subduing it to the glory of God. The task of the church, then, is to go and carry out the Great Commission. When it does, it will be enabling people to carry out the cultural mandate. Folks, there's a significant difference between God's agenda of of making disciples and much of what passes for serving the Lord these days. There are many good things that we pursue as Christians without ever really addressing the command to make disciples. But Jesus did not tell us to exercise dominion, to care for, and and subdue the earth just so we could live in prosperity while others continue in their rebellion against the Creator. No, he told us to rule the earth in order to disciple people to Christ and to disciple people to Christ so that they might rule the earth for his glory. And Jesus did not tell us to come and feed and clothe the poor so they could be more comfortable as they run headlong into God's judgment. Feeding the poor is not an end in itself. Jesus is calling disciples from among those weakest and neediest and most hopeless people. And Jesus did not tell us to work for justice so that people would get a fair shake in the courts of the land until they stood condemned in the courts of heaven. Jesus calls us to live as his disciples with a passion for justice and righteousness that others might see his character and follow him. Jesus did not tell us to stop the tragedy of abortion so that children can grow up and continue the rebellion of their parents. They would be better off aborted if that were the case. They would have less guilt. No, Jesus calls us to preserve life in order to make disciples for him, bringing those little ones to Jesus. In fact, Jesus did not call us to raise our own children to be bright and talented and cultured so that they could have a standard of living, a higher standard of living, and take care of us well in our old age. No, Jesus called us to bear sons and daughters for him, to sink our lives day in and day out into making them disciples who will themselves go to the ends of the earth wherever God calls them, taking our grandchildren with them. 
to make disciples of every nation and people and race and tribe and family on earth. Why is this so important? Because this is the only cause that holds hope for the world. The only hope for the world is in the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. His kingdom come. His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So the only worthy cause in this world is to make his rule known. To make disciples who live under his lordship committed to his word. It was for this that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the Father and gave us his spirit to enable us to go make disciples. Finally, this command comes with a promise. Our third point. Jesus never abandons us. Jesus never abandons us. One of the great tragedies of Vietnam was that we sent young men out to put their lives on the line and then we abandoned them. Some of them have never gotten over that. We see these scruffy old Vietnam vets standing on the street corners messed up. You see, there are few things so bitter as being abandoned, spending oneself only to be deserted, forsaken. Today, in Jesus' name, I'm calling you to go and give up your life, your plans, your preferences, your comforts, your goals, everything, and go make disciples. And I must warn you, this is not a very popular task. In our pluralistic culture, disciple-making is viewed as intolerance of other cultures' religions. And as you know, intolerance is the cardinal sin in our culture. So don't think it's going to make you popular to share the gospel. Furthermore, this calling is not easy. The work gets long, folks. Progress is often slow. Opposition is strong. Misunderstanding abounds. And just when you think you've made some progress, the very people that you prayed for and taught and counseled and loved may themselves turn on you and reject you and revile you. When Margaret Clarkson was a 23-year-old recently graduated teacher, the only job she could find was, to, was teaching in some remote mining village where there was no church, no family, no hard, no, uh, only hard circumstances and profound loneliness. But she stuck it out. She labored on this single 23-year-old woman and she wrote a hymn about it. Let me read it to you. She wrote it as if Jesus is speaking. So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to loneliness and longing, with heart a-hungering for the loved and known, forsaking home and kindred, friend and dear one, 
so send I you to know my love alone. So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to dear desire, self-will, resign. To labor long, to love when men revile you, so send I you to lose your life in mine. So send I you to hearts made hard by hatred, to eyes made blind because they would not see, to spend though it be blood, to spend it spare not. So send I you to taste of Calvary. Dear people, given all that, we need to hear this last truth loud and clear. Jesus will never abandon us. That's what he promises in verse 20. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this morning, if you're feeling the cost of your commitment to Christ, if the road is getting long, if the obstacles seem insurmountable, and the task seems hopeless, let me encourage you. Jesus is still right there by your side. You can't see him, but he can see you. He puts you in this situation. Oh, it looks like terrible, sinful people put you there, but the Lord is sovereign over even that. He's still in control. It looks like it's all up for grabs, but he is still in control. And he is not a million miles away buried in some bureaucracy. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus reveals himself as standing in the midst of a whole bunch of candles, which are the churches, standing in the midst of his church. And his name is Emmanuel, God in our midst. Jesus never will abandon. God has a whole different agenda than we have. We busy ourselves making life more comfortable and more prosperous and more fun. Living in communities with people just like ourselves. Raising perfect kids to live nearby to raise our perfect grandkids. All protected from the world's ugliness which often seems so distant out there. And as Christians we often think that God has given us his spirit to serve this agenda. But God has a different vision, folks. His vision is that we come to understand the Lordship of Christ, first of all. That Jesus is the boss. And then as we follow him ourselves, he calls us to share the gospel and go and make other disciples. Wherever the opportunity presents itself, no matter what the cost. But we do not fear. We do not shirk back. We certainly don't quit. For he has promised I will never, never abandon you. Folks, that's, this is God's agenda for every one of us. This is your calling, wherever God puts you. And even as I face retirement, I was reminded this week as I worked on this passage again that these truths don't change for me either. Jesus is still the boss. His command is still to make disciples. And his promise is still, I will not leave you. I will not abandon you. Amen. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we hear your word, and it's in such absolute terms that we can hardly process it. All authority. Make disciples of all nations. Faithful, even if we seem abandoned to know we're not. Oh, Father, we, we, we would none of us take this to heart and do it except your spirit work in us. And we pray that you would do that. Apply this and show us exactly what it means. Show us where we've not submitted ourselves to you as the Lord. Show us, Lord, where we've, where we've uh, forsaken and, and ignored opportunities to, to make disciples. Lord, and show us where we've thought that you've abandoned us and we've given up. Thank you for this text. Drive it home to our hearts, we pray, as we meditate on it. In Jesus' name, amen.